morning. The reading this morning is from 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21, on page 1014, and the Bible's in front of you. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Appreciate reading that, Jim. Let me encourage you to uh, have your copy of the scriptures open to that text that he was just in, as that is where we will be in for the sermon. Again, as he mentioned, it's page 1014, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there, um, or you can open your device to First Peter. Uh, chapter 1. Um, as we begin, I don't want to lose the force for the trees as we go through a sermon series like this. It's good to uh, every so often take a step back and kind of see where we're at and what we've been doing. Or trees um, might be, uh, we don't want to lose the skyline for the skyscraper. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to be like maybe a city like Chicago or something. You come out of the subway and you you walk up and then boom, there's these massive buildings all around you. And uh, you see those individual buildings and they're, they're beautiful to look at. But there's also a certain beauty about just looking back at the sky. Uh, to, to see um, just absolutes or the, the nuances that we kind of forget what the whole two group of believers who are actually as a result of being a book on First Peter is really a lot about uh, very applicable to where we're at today. And so his remedy for hope, as we've talked about, was and then he talks about that by praising God for his mercy uh, is a way to um, and then last week we talked about understanding what salvation, he's going to continue to talk about salvation here in the world. And so when the verse 13 comes to uh, a portion of the scripture, it's actually very true, to, to stop and look and say what it means in a multifaceted, uh, the first commands or the first imperative. Now he's bringing in some commands and he's saying, okay, now that, uh, that salvation brings some to here on earth. And those effects extend far beyond this life into about here that because of salvation because it requires some things and there's there's some there's some commands and so what are these commanding if you think and how we live how we think this morning okay father this is not rest is for correction to timothy and we believe it to be true. 
God, that uh, your spirit would guide us, God. I pray that I would, and I uh, pray you'd remove distractions from us. of this text today. So we lean on you. We lean on you and your spirit, uh, knowing that uh, 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 the desire is to to please you and to honor you. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So two commanding effects. First of all, uh, how we think. If you look at the text there, it says, therefore, prepare in your minds for action and being sober-minded. So there's a couple things we're going to talk about here. Um, the, the, The the imperative there, or the command, is set your hope fully on the grace. So set your hope. There's your command in the text. Um, the, the preparing and the being sober-minded, uh, those are participles of the way that, that tells us how to carry out. Those are instrumental participles that tell us how to carry out the action of the command. And so when he says this, okay, so here's what you need to do. You need to do this and here's how you do it. And so the first command is how do we think? And then the way we do that is this idea of preparing our minds for action. Okay, well, what does that mean? Now, some the you know, older translations, they have a, a phrase in there. Maybe some of you have this in your copy of your scriptures. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. Does anyone have that in, in your translation? Okay, all right, okay. Yeah, gird up the loins of your mind, okay? So you say, what does that mean? All right, that just sounds a, a little odd. Okay, what does that mean? Well, actually, when that was first written, it would have made sense, uh, much more sense to us than today. The the word picture there is um, that back in the day when Peter was writing, um, men wore long robes, okay? Uh, This was a standard uh, fare of what they would wear uh, throughout, you know, in the community. And so they would would have these long robes that went down uh, very long, and uh, they wore a belt around and overcoat type thing. And this idea of, of in order for them, this idea of gird up the loins of your mind, what he's, he's going back to this idea of that in order for someone to run or maybe even do some strenuous activity or something like this, they would actually have to take the robe and kind of tuck it in their belt, okay? So they tuck it in there to give them a little bit more access, to give them a little bit more mobility, right? And so this idea of, okay, we're getting ready to do something here, and so what we need to do is we need to get ready for this. So a modern-day understanding of that would be instead of we wouldn't say that this if I said, hey, we got a job to do here, so, you know, you know let's uh, gird up the loins of your robe here, you know. Everyone will look at me like I'm just weird, right, more so than normal. Um, but if I were to say to you, all right, we got a job, let's roll up our sleeves and let's get to work, okay, you guys would know what I mean, right? Okay, now am I literally saying in order to do this, everyone literally has to roll up their sleeves? Well, not necessarily. I mean, maybe it's helpful, uh, but the point is, is okay, work is about ready to happen. We need to get ready to do it. That's really what's going on here with this phrase. He says, okay, prepare your minds for action, okay? Um, and so really what he's saying here is that hope, is because there's the command, set your hope, okay, that's the command. He says that's not going to happen without disciplined thinking, without being someone who is disciplined in our thinking, and, and let me just tell you that, that, I, that I don't consider myself to be a great thinker at all. I mean, when I look at some of the people who are great thinkers, or I look at people in history who are great thinkers, you know, I know that it's like, you know, I'm not even in the same arena with these guys, okay, or these women, men and women. But what I will say is this, that compared to a lot of society, 
I'm a genius, okay? <laughs> All right? And you are too, okay? It's like there is an epidemic of poor thinking right now. There's absolutely terrible thinking. The inability to think in nuance or the inability to, to think uh, uh, something rationally or logically is really, really on the, on the decline in a very significant way. And, and, and that's, I bring that up because if we're going to set our hope on the things that are set up fully, this is the command that Peter's giving to those elect exiles and to us. He's saying, here's what you have to do. Is he says, you've got to prepare your mind for action. You've got, you've got to be disciplined in your thinking. And sometimes that takes just thinking things that are true. Philippians chapter 4 is a text of scripture I go to often. It's easy for, for fears to, to grip us and absolutely grip us. And, 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 and if we're not careful, we can be paralyzed by those. I, I don't know if I, I, I shared the story with you all on that. I, um, I, I can't remember what stories I tell when and everything. And so if I've already told you the story, please just act like it's the first time you've heard it, okay? Um, so it was, it was actually last summer. I think it was uh, last summer we were on a trip. And uh, we were going to be uh, going on a hike. And, and uh, we went on this hike. And, and I didn't know it, but it, you had to walk through this small tunnel to get there. Now, the older I've gotten, the older I've become, the more claustrophobic I've become. Okay. Um, I used tight spaces and things that never bothered me before. But the older I've gotten, the more claustrophobic I've become. Okay, maybe some of you can identify or something like that. I don't know. I remember as the kids that were running ahead, and there was a group of people coming at us, and it was very narrow. All of a sudden, it just this wave of panic came over me. I was like, whoa, whoa, you know, and so I, the kids are running ahead, and, you know, I was, it's like going through and all this stuff, no problems and everything. I'm like, wait, 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 come back. And so I'm thinking, okay, what, what are we going to do? I, I, and I said, I just need a second here. And I was like kind of embarrassed, you know, type thing, but I was like, I, 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 just, I just need a second. Well, you know, my wife being the loving wife she is, and my mom was with us, and they realized what was going on. Like, hey, we don't have to do this. We, we don't have to go in there. We, we don't have to go through it. We don't have to get up to the top and everything. And I said, no, we're going to do it. Okay, I just need a second. And the verse that came to my mind was Philippians chapter 4 when it says, whatever things are true, think on these things. And so I started rehearsing in my mind, okay, what do you know to be true about this situation, Jeremy? There are hundreds of people that are walking through the tunnel right now and no one's dying, okay, all right? They're making it out. They're even smiling, some of them. They're weird, but they're smiling as they're going through, okay? And so you know, it's fine. It's okay. This has been open for so long, and it's never you know, caved in and things like this. So I'm actually coaching myself through this. Then it's like, well, then if I die, what happens? Well, I go see Jesus. Okay, that's pretty good, okay? Can't scare me with heaven. But anyway, so, you know, this idea of, of, of just thinking things through... And God was able to give me just the confidence, like, okay, so I went through it, and it really wasn't that bad. And I'm actually kind of embarrassed that it was such a big deal to me, okay, at the time. But the point is this, is that we've got to be able to think. We've got to be able to think through things. We've got to be able to think through uh, uh, things that are true. And if we're going to have hope in this world, we've got to not let our, our minds and our, 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 our thoughts just run rampant without restraint here. Here is what he's saying. He's saying, Prepare your mind for action. He says, if you're going to have hope, this is the effect of salvation is that it changes how we think. So not only just preparing ourselves for action, but then he talks about this idea of sober-minded. Now, what does that mean? Now, it doesn't mean a lack of sense of humor. 
But what it does mean is it, it's coming from an illustration of really the opposite of drunkenness. Um, in drunkenness, we're controlled by the alcohol. Um, but here he's saying we need to have self-control and be alert. Another effect of drunkenness is that we're, we're not very alert. We're dull. Our senses are dulled many times. And here he's saying be sober-minded, self-controlled, alert. You know, there really is a way of thinking which dulls our senses to the reality of God. And this is what Peter's pushing against. And he's saying, he's saying, don't just, you need to set your hope. Okay, this is what salvation has done. He connects it to salvation by saying, therefore, okay, because we had the salvation, here's what we need to set our hope on uh, fully on the grace of God. And here's how we do that is by getting our mind ready for action, just by thinking well, okay. And then he says, uh, by being sober-minded, so I, you know, think about this. You know, have you ever considered why you think the way you think? Ever considered that? Have you ever just entered, you know, had a conversation with someone? You realize they think completely differently than I do. I mean, absolutely. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm not saying you know one way or another. You know, I mean, sometimes you know, couples, you know, in a marriage, it's like they just look at each other sometimes and they're like, "What are you thinking?" Like, how did, can, I don't, how did that even enter your head, you know? I mean, it's like there, there's times where we just approach things completely differently, okay? Why is that? Why do you think the way you think? Um, well, there's a lot of factors, right? I mean, some of the factors could be uh, the idea of, of, you know, what you listen to, the voices you listen to. Uh, and, you know, your, your environment growing up, if you grew up in a home where you were taught one thing over and over again or you observe things over and over and over again, that's going to affect how you think and it's going to affect the way you approach things in life. It doesn't excuse things one way or another, but it just means it's going to have an effect on it. So environment has an effect on that, of course. Um, what you're feeding yourself, I mean, the things that you listen to, the things that you watch, the books you read, all of that has a tremendous effect in how you think the way you think and the way I think the way I think. And again, I'm not arguing necessarily for one or the other or, or, or a specific stream here right now. All I'm pointing out is the fact is that we have to be very intentional with how we shape the way we think because that will affect whether or not we have hope in this life. Because that's what Peter's saying. He said, you have the salvation that God has given to you. Now you need to set your hope fully on that grace. And here's how you do that. You've got to take control of your mind. You've got to think on things that are true, like, Peter, like Paul is going to say later on here. And so this is why we do things like Awana. This is why we have adult discipleship power. This is why we have Sunday school. This is why we really encourage people to be involved in small groups. Because we need to be helping each other think through things. Have you ever had a conversation where you sat down with other group of people, uh, other groups of Christians, and you walked into a, a, a situation where you were thinking one way, but then when you heard them talking about it, and they bring up verses from the Bible, or they pray with you or something, you're like, you walk out just completely thinking in a different way. That's the beauty of the body of Christ, is that we need to encourage one another. There are plenty of times where people have, have come to a worship service like this, and it's the last place that they want to be. They, in their thinking, when they walk through the doors, they said, I just don't want to be here at all. But then when they leave, it was the best place that they wanted to be. Now, why is that? Is it because we're the greatest church in the world? No, that's not why. It's because the truth of God's word changed them. 
It's because they heard the singing. They heard the singing. Recently, I was teasing someone who was sitting in a different spot. Okay, you throw preachers off when you do that. By the way, you know. Okay, you know. Wait a minute here. What's going on? I was teasing someone who they were in a different spot. They had moved up. <laughs> so I was trying to be t- very careful in my teasing, right? Because we like people moving up. And one of the things that this person told me, and I don't have the permission to share their name, so I'm not, but one of the persons that they told me at that time, they said, we were amazed by the singing, how different it sounded up front than in the back. And I know they were referring to my voice, okay? <laughs> okay. They heard the congregation singing, and it was really helpful. You know, that's, that, that's the, it's the congregation singing that is just helpful to us and, and encourages me every Sunday. Singing the songs with you encourages my soul. If I have to admit, there's been plenty of times, there's been several times where it's like, I just, I just don't want to do this or I don't want to be here. And then when I'm here with you all and singing and reading Scripture, my mind is changed. That's the beauty of the Word of God. That's the beauty of the body of Christ, the church working together. And so surround yourself with that. So small groups are really helpful for that because you can interact with some believers and that. We've heard some really good testimonies, the elder team at our last meeting and, and uh, some of the emails we traded uh, just shared some testimonies we've heard of, of, of people being really helped by uh, their small group that they've been in. I mean, just we're talking massive, massive encouragement there. And so we just praise God for that. And it's, it's because of people shaping each other's thinking. So let me just encourage us. If we're going to live out the salvation, okay, God's given us the salvation, and we're going to have this hope that this command is that's been given to us here, it is that we need to arrest our thinking and be very intentional in our thinking. We're also told, I need to say this quickly, we're also told to set our hope fully on grace that will come. I hope you saw that in the text. Okay, in verse 13, is that we're supposed to be, put our, our full hope on the grace of God, but notice this, it says that will come. Okay? We, 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 don't, we haven't fully experienced all the grace that we're going to have that's going to save us, right? We, we've experienced grace to bring us to salvation, of course, but we're waiting for a day. We're waiting for the day of when Christ comes back and sets all things right. And so for the, for the New Testament uh, 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 understanding of hope, okay, it, it's more than just wishful thinking. I know I've said this before, but it's more than just wishful thinking. It, it's, a, it's a settled uh, uh, assurance of a reality that just hasn't happened yet. Now, the reason why that can be is because our future hope is based on a past event. Our future hope of what Jesus will come and do is based on the fact that he rose from the dead in the past. And so the reason why we can have this great hope for the future is because we know what he accomplished in the past. And so this is why the Bible, he talks about salvation in terms of justification, and I talked a little bit about this last week, of how that we are saved. We can have that assurance that we are saved. But then the Bible also talks about, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it talks about this idea of sanctification, which I mentioned last week as well. It talks about the idea of we're being saved. Now that doesn't contradict the fact that we are saved, but it says that there's a work that God's doing in our life and that we need to obey and that we need to follow God and we need to, by our choices that we're following God, this aids in our sanctification process. Justification is what God does for us. Sanctification is what we're doing. So we have, we have the past, we have the present, but then the Bible also talks about this future hope called glorification, that we will be saved one day where we will be removed of sin and death, will be no more sorrow, will be no more. Jesus will come back and set all things right. We don't have to worry about this stuff anymore. And I cannot wait for that day. I don't know about you. 
Well, so the Bible talks about we set our hope fully on the grace that is to come. And how do we do that? Part of it is by arresting our thinking and thinking on things that are true, thinking on the scriptures. Let the scriptures inform us. And what that's going to do is it's going to lead us to the second commanding effect of salvation. So the first one is how do we think? Our hope is settled on how we think about God and his salvation plan. But secondly is holiness, how we live. He's very, here's another command, verse 15. He says, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So we are told here that we are to be holy. So the reality of salvation demands that we think differently. We've talked about that. It talks about how that, that takes discipline. But it also talks about this idea of how we live. And so what is holiness and how do we define it? We can define holiness by moral purity or being set apart or dedicated to God. Um, and, and this is typically how the, the word is used in, in reference to uh, a mankind of, that we are, 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 are set apart to God or dedicated to God. Now, ungodly desires still tempt believers. We talked about that even in adult discipleship hour a little bit here. Um, but so because of our, our ungodly desires are still tempting us, because we still have the sin nature that is at work in our lives, we are commanded to live holy lives. And I know I've made this point before that commands are given to us for what is unnatural to us. Uh, we don't usually need to be told to breathe. That comes very naturally to us. But if, we are have, if someone does have to tell us to breathe, it's telling us that something's wrong. If someone's like, breathe, breathe, just breathe here. That means that there's something wrong here. And so the things that, that come naturally to us, we don't need a command for. And if we do, then it shows that something's broken here. And so the fact that there's a command here shows that this is not natural to us or that something is seriously wrong. We're to live holy lives. We're to live a life that's set apart. This is what God's commands. He says, because he's connected to salvation, the effect of salvation is that you and I will live a holy life. It's hard, isn't it? I can't stand before you and say that I'm perfectly holy. I can't stand here and tell you that I've avoided all sin this last week. This is where it gets difficult. But this is the command. And we can't Ignore the command simply because it's difficult. We can't say, well, God knows that I'm not perfect, so I don't have to worry about this. There is a command right in front of us this morning to live a holy life. And, you know, we're good at avoiding the sins that culture says is terrible. Okay, we're good at avoiding those, okay? I don't think we have people that have a, you know, side gig of murdering people or anything, you know, or, you know, selling, you know, meth labs or whatever, you know. We don't have a lot of that probably here. At least I hope not, okay? All right. We're pretty good at avoiding all those things that society says, hey, that's terrible, okay? What about the sins, though, that... Society gives the green light for, but God says no. How are we at avoiding those sins? You can't have, it's got to be both, okay? You know, the holiness here that God is calling us to through Peter's writings here is very sobering here. 
Holy living means resisting impulses to sin, especially in those areas where society approves of. Otherwise, how are we set apart? How are we different? So what I'm going to do over the next few minutes here, I'm just going to walk through the four reasons that I found in this text of why we should live holy lives, okay? Of why we should live holy lives here. So let me just walk us through these four reasons to live holy lives from this text. First of all, the text is clear because God's holy. It says, you shall be holy, verse 16, since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So the first reason that we are to live holy lives is because our Father is holy and we are to live up to the family name. He saved us. He removed us from the sin of darkness in, in this, this place so that we would endeavor to live holy lives. We need to live up to that family name. As I said, if a child wants nothing to do with the father, it shows that something is broken. It's either because there's something wrong with the child or something wrong with the father or both. Now, in this case, about with God being our father, we know it's not the, God, we know it's not the father's fault because he is holy. And so the problem must be with us then. And so the, when the command that Peter gives for us to live holy lives is that it says that your father, the father who saved you, the father who enacted the salvation plan, he is holy and he is calling you to live a holy life, to imitate him and imitate his son, Jesus Christ. That is what you should do. That is something we should take very seriously. That should be something that we are thinking through every day. That is something that it should be a factor in the decisions that we make. God is holy. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to watch this. I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to laugh at that. I'm not going to endorse this. Whatever that is, you think about it. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, spend my money in this way, or I'm not going to do it because God is holy. My Father is holy. This is the command. So the first reason is that God is holy. The Father is holy. But there's another reason here. And this is what it, it should arrest our attention in verse 17. It says, and if you call him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct, there's another command, there's the third command of our text, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So the second reason is because the father will judge everybody. Everybody. We all will stand before God one day. Now, some of your mind, your theological mind, you're racing right now. Like, hey, what about Romans chapter 8, verse 1? There's now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. Okay, hey, I'm glad you're going there. Hang on a second, okay? Before we get there, let me just talk through this for a second, okay? I'm going to get to Romans 8, 1. But here we have this, this very clear command. And, and, and we have other texts, too. We have other texts that tell us that we all are going to give an account. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Are two texts that come to mind. Romans chapter 14 is another one, verses 10 to 12. Um, Matthew chapter 12 is another one where it talks about that we all will give an account to God. Okay? Every person here, every one of us, we are going to give an account to God. Be ready for that day. And what are some of the ways that we're going to have to give an account? We're going to be accountable for what God has given to us. I mean, you know, we're going to be accountable for how we use our health and our bodies. They're gifts from God. We're going to give an account for how we manage our time. We're going to give an account for how we spend our money. We're going to give an account for how we used or did not use the talents God gave to us. Probably the most sobering comes for me comes in Matthew chapter 12 where it says that we will give an account for every idle word spoken. This is a very serious text to me today. 
that I know that one day I will stand before a holy God and give an account. You know, this is something that the elder team talks about sometimes. We say we know that we are going to give an account. Hebrews chapter 13 makes it very clear that we are going to give an account for how we led this church. And so sometimes, you know, we, we, we do a good job and sometimes we don't. But we, we, are just something, we are just constantly thinking through this idea that we are going to give an account. And you are going to give an account for how you parented your children for those who are parents. You're going to give an account for the influence you have on your grandchildren. You're going to give an account for the money in which you spend. You're going to give an account for uh, how you use the opportunities God's given to you. You're going to give an account for all this. You're going to stand before God. Now, some of you are saying, but Jeremy, wait a minute here. Wait a minute here. What, what, what about this idea of no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ? That is true. Your account will not send you to hell. Okay? So, if you're a Christian here and you believe in Jesus Christ, and there's a great hope, and this is what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about how we need to have this hope, but he's bringing this idea of that we've got to fear God. We have got to have a holy fear. That is going to help us endure persecution. That is going to help us endure. What, what he's really saying here is he's saying, you don't need to be worried about those who are persecuting you. You need to be worried about a holy God. That's what he's saying. So yes, we will be saved. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about that. We're saved. Yeah, absolutely. But yet, the things that we do, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, those, those things, you know, they're going to be either purified or they're going to be burnt up. And, and the Bible does talk about, Hebrews talks about how that we can be ashamed at his coming. So while we may have eternal life, and, and I'm not saying for all eternity we're going to have this intense sorrow. No, because he's going to set all things right. And then when the new heaven, new earth comes down, Revelation 21 is very clear. All the sorrow goes away. But I'm just telling you that when we stand before God, we all are going to give an account. And that should be something that just arrests our thinking and, thinks, and, 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 and causes us to want to live holy lives here. I told you that what... what what uh, Peter's saying, he's saying, he says, you know, we need to, in verse uh, 17, says, conduct yourselves with fear. Those, for the time of your exile, this is not a, a trembling, like you're, you're afraid that God is going to just throw you into hell type fear. But this is a fear of, a, of, a, of, a, of an awe, of a respect, of recognizing the power of this. I remember when my dad got a small little fishing boat when I was a kid, and um, he, uh, he said, uh, uh, in order for us to go out in the boat with him, and of course, you know, we wanted to, you know, run the boat and, you know, do the motor and all stuff. He says, in order for us to do this, we all have to take a boater safety class. And so I remember as a little kid, my older brother, myself, my dad, on Saturday mornings, we would go down and we would take this boater safety class. And we learned all about the buoys and the colors and all that sort of stuff. Everything I've forgotten now and all that stuff. And so um, I remember, though, over and over again, my dad would say this. And then the instructor would say this. He would say, you've got to fear the water. You've got to fear the water. Now, what they didn't mean is that we would never get on into the boat. I mean, the whole point of it was so that we could get in the boat. That was the whole point of the class. But the point is to say, understand that what they were saying is you've got to respect it. You've got to respect the power of the water and that it could just consume you if it wanted to, so to speak. I'm using anthropomorphic, obviously. But the point is, is that this is the way it is with God is that we have to have a respect for God and understand that he is holy. And sometimes we treat God as if he's just kind of a buddy or we, just, we talk about God as if he's just one of the guys or something like that. And let me tell you, the Bible talks about God is absolutely holy. 
we should, we should have an awe and a respect of this. This is what, what Peter's saying. He said, you want hope in this life in the midst of these trials. You, you, don't, you don't worry about them who can kill the body. You worry about the one who can kill the soul. That's the one you worry about. That's what Jesus said, right? So there's a, there's a, there's a sobriety here in this text. I think of Ambrose Milan. We talked about this last week in Adult Discipleship Hour. He wrote a letter to the emperor. The emperor, he had, uh, he, something had happened in, in the city of Thessalonica. This is uh, around uh, uh, 390 A.D. And um, uh, one of the emperor's friends was killed. And so in anger, he sends troops to go and just wipe out the city of Thessalonica. Um, he sends them out there. And then, of course, he, 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 you know, I, I, after he kind of collected his thoughts, he, rec- he recognized, hey, this is a bad idea to send a, a whole army to go wipe out a city. So he sends another messenger and says, hey, call the troops back. Call the troops back. Well, by the time the second messenger got there, the battle had already started and 7,000 people were massacred. Okay. So word gets back, you know, to uh, um, the Ambrose, who's a bishop there in, in, of Milan. And um, uh, the, the, the emperor comes into church service the next Sunday, and Ambrose refuses to let him in and says, you've you got to repent of this. You've got to repent of this. One of the things he says, he says in a letter that we have that he wrote to the emperor, he says, this is Ambrose's words to the emperor, he says, you can wash away your sin only by tears, by repentance, by humbling your soul before God. You, talking to the emperor, you are a man. You have sinned as a man. You must repent as a man. I pray for you. If you believe this, accept what I say. But if you do not believe it, forgive me for preferring God to you. I mean, he was, the fear of God had gripped him where it didn't matter if he was talking to the emperor or anyone else. He was going to stand for what was right and repentance and truth. And so we, we look at this that one day we're going to give an account. And yes, you know, we don't have to worry about being thrown into hell if we're believers in Jesus Christ, okay? But I will say this, is that the Bible also talks about that if our lives haven't been changed by Christ, we should really wonder if we truly are Christians. And so we're going to stand before holy God, my friends. And this is not a message that I have been anticipating, like wanting to preach. Because I don't want to be the guy that stands there and just says, you know, this really sober message. But I would not be a good pastor if I skipped over this text and didn't warn you. That God, we will stand before God, every one of us. So please, think through that carefully. Another reason is that we're foreigners. Not only will God judge everyone, but it says that we're foreigners. It says that throughout the time of your exile, he says that Peter's impressing. This is the theme throughout the book of Peter here is that we are not natural to this world. We are created for another world in many ways. And he's saying that we are going to live according to different customs and a different moral code than what the world has. And so he says, you've you got to have this mind. This, this goes back to the first one of how we think. Think not as someone who is a citizen here, but think of someone who is a citizen of a heavenly city with a different moral code and a different standard of conduct, a higher one. What, I remember when we were adopting, uh, we were going to adopt two boys from Liberia. Some of you remember us sharing that story. Uh, this was years ago before uh, the, the Lord brought Mia to us. And Isaiah, well, my wife and I, we were going to adopt two boys uh, from Liberia. And, I, and we had gotten so far in the process, and we were literally one signature away from it, and then they all shut down, and we lost it. Um, but uh, I remember doing some of the training of this, 
And uh, one of the things that you had to do is that because it was international adoption is that we had to um, look through what maybe how the, their culture was different than our culture, okay? And it is different. One of the things that I remember, the thing that stands out to me, the, the main big difference was, and I was just really surprised by this, is that uh, the prevalence of dishonesty and lying even amongst Christians. I was, I was kind of, I thought to myself, how could that be? How could it be that lying is accepted there in that culture. Well, then I recognize the reason why. Again, I'm not excusing it, but I'm just telling you the reason why. The reason why, because in that culture, dishonesty was a lesser offense than disappointment. And so if I was going to disappoint someone who I loved, it was better for me to lie so I saved them from the disappointment than to disappoint them. I mean, that's completely backwards to the way we think. Oh, every, I, I dare say, if I took a survey, everyone here would say, I'd rather be disappointed than lied to, okay? But in that culture, it was completely different. Again, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's different. And so you have to, you have to understand, okay, we, we got to think in different ways. But if I were to go there, and I were to live there, and I were to just embrace lying, some of you would be like, hey, Jeremy, okay, that's, that's, that's not good. Or think about this. What if someone temporarily uh, moved to a different country, uh, maybe where spousal abuse is, is uh, actually uh, sanctioned? And, and let's just say that I call home and, and, and I say, man, I'm really enjoying the culture here. And I explain how that, that, that I'm beating my wife. Would anyone here say, well, you know, that's good that you're acclimated to the culture. That's great. You would say to me, Jeremy, what are you doing? You cannot do that. But I would say, but hey, this is how it is here. It's legal. This is, this is what's expected here. What would you tell me? You would tell me, I don't care. It is wrong. And if you didn't say that to me, you'd be a terrible friend. You see, the point is, is that just because it's legal or accepted in an area doesn't mean that we should accept it. So true, it is with us. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and yet we look at the culture all around us and what's accepted of us, and we just embrace it. It's like, yeah, that's fine. And I just wonder where God is saying, wait, you're part of a different culture here. You're not part of them. Live as such. This is what he says here. And so, we are foreigners here. We need to live according to higher standards and the customs of our homeland, not here. And then I need, to, I need to wrap this up, but here's one last one, is that, that there's another reason to live holy lives, is that Jesus paid an enormous ransom for us. The text here says, it says knowing. So how to conduct, be holy, knowing that you were ransomed, remember verse 18, from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And he goes on and he talks about this, and the point is this, is that the price that Jesus paid to ransom you so that you could live a holy life, so you could think differently, working out the salvation that God has given to us, Philippians chapter 2 says, that price that Jesus paid is so enormous. It is so greater than we can ever imagine. And someone that, that paid that for us, and then for us to just say, yeah, that's fine, but I'm not going to change my way of thinking. That's fine. I'm not going to change my way of living. That is a complete fragrant, a, a flagrant offense against this ransom that Jesus paid for us. And so he says, I want you to live this holy life. I want you to live this because this is what salvation is intended to do. It's to change our way of thinking. 
I don't know if you've ever taken the time to consider what Jesus did to pay for your sin or to ransom you, but I would encourage you to do that. Consider the great price that is. And the whole point of this was it says in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In many ways, what he's saying here is he's saying, don't go back to what he saved you from. I came across this video, and it's a really short video clip, about 30 seconds here. I'll show it to you. Maybe some of you have seen it before, but I thought it summed up the way we live our lives many times here. There's a boy helping a sheep. That's a belt he has around the leg of the sheep, helping the sheep out of this ditch, and Gets the sheep out. I'm so grateful for that. The sheep goes away. <laughs> right back into the ditch. In a minute here, you can get a slow-mo version of it here in a minute as I talk here. But uh, I think you will, Alicia. Yeah. Um, but the point is, yep, there it is. Kerplunk. I wonder how many times we're that way. I wonder how many times that God, he's ransomed us and we're just like right back into it. Right back into it. Now, here's the beautiful thing. I, I got to end on a positive note. And the fact is, is that God's forgiveness is there. It's available. So my, my plea to you this morning to live a holy life is not meant to only heap guilt on you. That would be, that would be harmful. But what I want to do is I want you to feel that pressure. But I want you to know that you can run to Christ at any time. Let me close with this. You know, Baptist churches in the 1980s, they were known, many Baptist churches, at least the ones I was accustomed to in the 80s, they were known for, you know, hell, fire, and brimstone type preaching. Um, yelling, pounding in the pulpit, things like that. It wasn't uncommon for preachers to spend a lot of time talking about the evils of the world and how God would judge sinners. Many people, as a result, they developed this idea of God as being very angry and just always looking to rain down judgment upon people. That was an unfortunate byproduct of that. There was a correction in decades in the, since then about talking about God in terms of love and forgiveness. Sermons that begin to center on the fact that there is no condemnation to those who are saved, much like many of the messages that I preach. It was a needed correction. But as often is the case, I wonder if there was an overcorrection. I haven't found the balance myself, if I'm going to be honest with you. The fact of the matter is, is that God is a judge, and we will all stand before him one day. If you are a Christian, you don't have to worry about your sin, your sin sending you to hell, but it is possible to be ashamed, as I said earlier, when Jesus comes back. And so I will say this, is that God's salvation is intended to revolutionize the way you think and to transform your life. If this hasn't happened, you need to ask yourself if you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount by warning people who think that they will be in heaven when they are not. Please don't be that person. 